Well, good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 John as we continue along. We'll get right into it because there is quite a bit to say. I would say particularly in the application, what I'm going to try to attempt to do. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 28 together this morning. John writes, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. John's point in this section is clear enough, is that his Christians should abide in the truth in order to stand with confidence in the judgment. Abide in the truth. Why? In order to stand with confidence in the judgment. We're going to see repetition in this passage and some developed themes uh, uh, that are going to build on the time we spent together last week with by far the most prominent idea that is introduced, not of course to the letter, but in this section, is this idea of abiding, the concept of abiding. You recall that John has just discussed the group we've called the secessionists, those who have gone out. These are frauds who have gone out of the community. Uh, despite claiming to be a part of it, John says by their going out, they demonstrated that they were not ever actually a part because otherwise they would not have gone out. They would have remained with us. And whatever else we might intuit, we learn explicitly that these folks um, are, are somehow denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, that his, he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah, God the Son who has come in fulfillment of the promises and come again specifically in the flesh. He, he, he tells his audience that it is not these who have gone out, but it is they, they are the ones who are in the know because of this anointing that they have received from the Holy One. So they've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, uh, and they have this anointing. We talked about this back in uh, verse 20, and we're going to see it again right here. And so after calling these people antichrists, people calling them antichrists, those who deny the Father and the Son, this Trinitarian package deal, he begins with well-weathered language in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now once more, if it is not clear <laughs> that John is not saying anything foundationally new to his readers and is instead stirring them up to continue with what they heard from the beginning, if that's not been made clear, either you haven't been here or I've done the worst job of communication that is possible to do. Because here it is one more time. Here it is one more time stirring them up 
to continue in what they received, what they heard from the beginning, that it would abide in them. Now, this word abide, it's often in some of your translations, depending on what you have, it's often translated remain. It's this idea of, of taking up permanent residency in or coming to a settled position. In other words, it has this idea of being in and being in, in, an, enduring in an enduring manner. And if John's readers listen to what he's saying, there's a promise for them. There's a promise in the second half of the verse. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if it remains in you, what you heard, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So the, the chain of reasoning goes like this. If what you heard abides in you, then you will abide in them. It's very simple. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will therefore, as a result, abide in the Father and the Son. And so I want to point out that John makes very clear, very clear here that not all claims of devotion to God, love for God, or service to God even, are sufficient in and of themselves to be actually found in God. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. John explicitly ties whether one has fellowship with the Father and the Son to the message that they heard from the beginning. So it is very tightly tied to truth. Very tightly tied to truth. And this truth was delivered, remember this, to actual historical people. Actual historical people. And here's the thing. He expected them to not only understand it, but understand it so well that they should be able to discern when people have departed from it. And call them frauds. We're going to return to this in a little bit. But they should understand. Not just. He's assuming they understand. Remember what you heard from the beginning? Yes. That. Uh, he takes it as that they understand what they heard. So well that they're able to. Call other people frauds when they have departed from it. Regardless of what those other people are saying. Now that's a lot of confidence that someone had the right understanding. And so in John's language. He doesn't think it's prideful or stubborn. For his audience to know that they're right, and on the relevant issues, other people are just wrong. In fact, that's exactly what he's saying. It's exactly what he said. Well, you just think you're right, and people who disagree with you are wrong? Well, aside from being just a basic axiom of logic, given that both... Yes, that is right. That is exactly what I'm saying. And that's what John's saying. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that later. As it turns out, on the heels of this promise of what abides in you, if what you heard abides in you, then you will abide in the Father and the Son. There's one more promise in verse 25. And that is the promise of eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I am tempted to belabor this point, particularly because of its beauty, but partially because of my recent extensive deep dive into the... Um, Hell, universalism, and annihilationist literature. But I'm not going to be that person who brings their academic issues just into the pulpit and vomits theology on people. But let me just say this, if you've ever been in these discussions. For John, just like the concept of light and truth, okay, eternal life is a thick concept. 
It does not merely mean having DNA and a pulse forever. Okay? The resurrected wicked will have DNA and a pulse forever. But I'm suggesting that that would be a mistake to call that, in John's idiom, eternal life. Okay? So it's not as though the unrighteous dead are raised to non-eternal life, mortal life, and then die and are extinguished. That's not it. Believers are raised to eternal life, everyone else to non-eternal life, and then they perish, meaning they go out of existence. That's the second death. No, 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 no. Everyone will continue with DNA and a pulse forever. Only believers will experience eternal life. So how do we get our hands around it then exactly? If this is a thick concept, like being born in John is a thick concept, and light and truth. Remember in 1 John chapter 1, the prologue. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it. And what did he say? We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. He's calling the Son, he's calling Christ the eternal life that was with the Father and then came down in the flesh to be manifested among us. And for, so for John, eternal life is found by being in the Son and the Father, given that the Son is the eternal life who came down from the Father. So we have this union with the eternal life from the Father, and it is not simply existing. You abide in the one that has eternal life, you get eternal life. It's that simple. Abide in the one that has eternal life, you get eternal life. Not merely everlasting existence. This union with Christ, or Paul's to steal Paul's language, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Okay? To God alone belongs immortality, remember? But believers, in light of this union with eternal life, have this kind of imparted eternal life that they are given. And this is a reality now, but not yet. We're going to see that in just a second. In John 17, which we heard already, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Another great example that John doesn't use the word flesh to mean sin. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, having DNA and a pulse forever. No, that's not what he says. And this is eternal life, that, you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay? For John, this is something we have now. You go back and read his gospel especially. We have it now, and we will have it in a consummated way later. Already? Not yet. We've explored this theme three or four times now already in this letter. Eternal life for John is something that you have now, but you will physically die. But then there will be another sense, the fullness of it, in which you will never die. And it won't just be existing, it'll be existing in this kind of a way. And so, so if you just, if, if you've, Totally checked out. Just come back for one second and remember this point about eternal life. Okay? There is no fuller way to live life now than having eternal life. Experience now as genuinely knowing the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit and then being known, knowing even as we are fully known. There's no way to live a fuller life than that. 
eternal life experienced now as genuine knowledge of God and then, because it's genuine, but, but it's not what it will be. We see as in a mirror kind of dimly lit. I mean, this thing is, but one day, one day there is a promise of restoration and renewal and such a knowledge of God that we, we really can't even begin to describe without accidentally lapsing into some kind of heresy. There are, that's why all, all of it is just metaphor language that describes the blessedness of what's coming. That is the promise, eternal life. Let it wash over you, press into it. If you are in Christ, you have it now and you will have it then. John, once more, moving along, gives, you, gives us another, I am writing to you. Okay? I am writing to you. And this time, he makes the warning of the last passage more explicit, calling these folks who have gone out deceivers. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now remember, I'm not claiming, and John's not claiming, that these people would admit to being deceivers. That's not what he says. Okay? That's not what he says. The people on the, on the TV who are asking you to you know, send in $1,000 so that you can be healed, they might not admit to being deceivers, although it's hard to know, believe that they don't actually know that about themselves. But these people, there's no indication that they were secretly knew they were deceivers. They just happened to be wrong. And they were attempting to persuade this John's audience to move away from what they had originally heard. So John doesn't have a problem just calling it deception. They're mixing truth with error. They're saying, hey, have you considered this? Hey, this is a little nuance here. Hey, here's a little wrinkle. He says, no, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're trying to trick you. They are trying to lead you away from the truth. Straight up. And then he says this, gives us this long verse. He explains why this supposedly extra teaching, which first of all is false, but second of all, it's not even needed. It's not needed. It's contrary to the truth and it isn't even needed in principle. Why? Well, it has to do with the anointing from back in verse 20. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. A couple things to point out here. Long verse. Long verse. So bear with me. Let's make a couple observations together. The first is that there is no exhortation to abide in the anointing. Did you notice that? Okay? He says specifically that the anointing abides in them. That's the foundation of their knowledge. Right? That's how the explanation works. Because this anointing abides in you, you don't need anyone to teach you stuff. He's not telling them to go get the anointing. He's, it, it, he is giving this fact about them. This anointing, it abides in you as a matter of fact. They do not, as a result, need anyone to teach them. Anyone coming to them claiming that they, they need to be instructed past what they initially heard, initially received about the person and work of Jesus, 
They are mistaken, and more than that, they are deceivers, John says. He's not mincing words. They are deceivers. He says that the anointing teaches them everything, and unlike these people who are deceivers, everything it teaches, we see, is true. It's not mixed with error. It's not not Christian wrapping paper on a lie. What the Spirit teaches, the anointing teaches, is true. And then we get this critical insight into the nature of the teaching. What is the nature of the teaching of the anointing of the Holy Spirit? The very last clause there. Just as it has taught you, and if you didn't read, and if I put a little piece of paper over those two words, what would you think? What would the Spirit teach? New theology? Ethical principles? For difficult life decisions? No, that's not what it says. What did the Spirit teach? It teaches to abide in Him. Abide in Him. That's not what you thought it should. That's not what it should say, right? We're going to come back to this a moment in application, but but John is not saying that we don't need Bible teachers. Not saying we don't need elders. He says that we do. There is no need past what we have received in conjunction with the anointing we have received. There is no need for someone to teach you past that about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the context makes that crystal clear. It's, he's not saying, listen, you don't need anyone to teach you new theology because you already know it. You know that? No one could ever teach you anything because you already know it all. No, that's not what he's saying. The context very clearly specifies that what we are talking about and what the Spirit is bearing witness to and calling them to abide in is the person of Jesus as the Messiah come in the flesh, what He has done, what that means, what the promises are. In other words, just shorthand, gospel faithfulness. Gospel faithfulness. There isn't in anything in addition to gospel faithfulness, John is saying, that you need to hear in order to live rightly before God and really try. You have to really grasp or you can't actually know God. You thought you know God because you got gospel faithfulness, but there's this other thing that you really have to know to go to the next tier. He's saying, that's deception. It's deception. The final thing I want to point out is this, is that the teaching of the Spirit, I alluded to it, is not like a school teacher teaching facts or a pastor teaching theology. That's not what it says. That's not the example that we're given. This isn't a voice inside someone's head that speaks to them, teaching them biblical and systematic theology, philosophical ethics. Or what to do in any manner of circumstances is a still small voice. If we take the explicit example of what the Spirit teaches from the very end of the verse, it teaches us to remain in what we already know, then I'm suggesting that the Spirit's teaching role is more like prompting to faithfulness, endurance, and remembrance. Let me give you an an illustration that hopefully sticks with you. One of my friends in college was a um, spin... Uh, spin spin class instructor. Some of you have done those before. You know, you pedal the stationary bike, right? And so uh, she would go teach classes as a spin class instructor. But what's interesting, if you were to sit in on one of her classes, which I never did because I would pass out, 
uh, in that class probably, was um, that she wasn't actually teaching any health facts. There wasn't any didactic instruction going on. You know that? The spin class instructor isn't teaching anyone about like calories or like dieting or how to be healthy. They're also, she, wasn't also, she also was not teaching people how to pedal a bike. Like if you didn't know that, you just couldn't, you just didn't show up to a class, you know? What was she doing then? In virtue of what? Was she an instructor? What was she teaching? Well, there was already a plan laid out. The workout was up there uh, on the wall or on the screen or whatever it was. Her instructing looked more like encouraging, guiding through what had already been laid out, making sure that people felt like they weren't going at it alone. Right? And what I'm suggesting that John, is that John understands the teaching ministry of the Spirit, the anointing that teaches you all things about Christ and gospel faithfulness is very much like that of a spin class teacher and not like an inner theology or ethics professor. Okay. An inner, meaning inner theology inside your head kind of theology. And so as this section closes in verse 28, he ties together some of the threads of the discussion and he, then he kind of puts it in larger perspective. He puts it in larger perspective for us. He says... And now, little children's affectionate language once more, abide in Him. Abide in Him. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. This is the only time in John's gospel or his letters. This is it. The one time that Jesus' coming is referred to with this technical term that we see in Paul a lot. Parousia. Parousia, the coming. It can't just mean someone coming in general, but it generally refers to Christ's climactic coming at the end of all things. And that's the context here. That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying is this. You know why you need to abide? Because that will allow you to have confidence, understood as not being ashamed. That's how he teases it out. When Christ returns. Karen Jobes has a beautiful little section in her commentary that I can't improve on. So I was just going to quote some of it to you. She talks about, particularly in the context of John, how someone could be ashamed relative to the, the topics, the issues at stake. She says, how ashamed one would feel to stand condemned before Jesus Christ and finally see the truth of who he is after a lifetime of believing wrongly about him and teaching others to do the same. And there are many ways to believe wrongly about Jesus. She lists four that align well with the context. The error of rejecting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah will, will be revealed when he returns to bring God's redemptive plan begun in covenant with ancient Israel to its final consummation. That will be revealed. People who do not think Jesus was the Messiah. The error of rejecting Jesus' blood as an atoning sacrifice will be revealed when He stands as judge over all our sin. The error of believing that the Spirit leads away from orthodox teaching about Jesus Christ to some generic spirituality will be revealed when Jesus appears as the only Lord whom the Holy Spirit glorifies. The error of rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, believing Him to be merely a righteous teacher of religion, will be revealed when He comes again rightfully ruling and reigning over all the cosmos. 
John tells his audience, those he knows who are in fellowship with him, or, or speaks as though he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. He tells them to abide in the Father and the Son so that they will not be put to shame. Now, if you were here for our Sunday school a couple of weeks ago now, you will know that there is nothing inconsistent with John exhorting believers to not be put to shame. Even though true believers, as he just said in verse 19, will endure. If someone goes out, they were never truly in. So why bother with the exhortation? Abide so you won't be ashamed. But remember that exhortations and warnings in Scripture are part of the means by which that God has chosen to preserve the elect. Warnings and admonitions are the means by which, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, teaching us what has been delivered to us, that is the means of which we are preserved. God hasn't chosen to preserve us until the finish line by just giving us sinless hearts immediately. That would be one way to do it. That would guarantee you got to the finish line. He hasn't chosen to take people out of the world to get to elect to the finish line. Well, what means has He chosen? He has chosen exhortation and warning in conjunction with what we have received and the anointing. The warnings and exhortations are a means. And he says, abide. Look towards the end of the runway. The coming of Christ isn't here yet. He's not saying, do this so you don't lose something in the past. He's saying, do this so that when this happens, you won't be put to shame. Abide. Remain in Him. If the, what you heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain the Father and the Son. If you do that, you'll have eternal life. And you do that, you won't be put to shame. And so, abide. Abide. Let's be a people who abide in the truth in order to stand with confidence in the judgment. I have one theological, practical point of application that is a little bit robust, but that's okay. That's okay. What I would like to do in the remaining time that I have is tease out a practical theology of abiding. A practical theology of abiding. Um, every commentator, and certainly you don't have to be a commentator to figure this out, uh, in this section understands the issue of theological authority is at stake here. Who gets to say? Who gets to interpret the truth? Who gets to say the truth? Who is it who gets to say who's right and wrong? How do we learn who's right and wrong? Well, the Bible, but who, whose interpretation of the Bible? All of these are issues that you see pregnant within this particular text. I cannot answer all the questions, but all I would like to do is sketch a practical framework for you for thinking about how to abide and listen to and learn the Word in order to know it in the way that John's audience was expected to know it. That's an ambitious program, by the way. It's something that you could do three weeks of teaching on. But we're going to do it in 15 minutes. Maybe 20. First, inscripturated apostolic authority. Inscripturated meaning here it is in the scripture. Apostolic meaning the apostles' authority. 
As an apostle, John was not only witness to Jesus and heard him speak directly, but he was also the object of a special kind of influence and teaching from the Holy Spirit that was given to the apostles as they laid the foundation of the church. It was actually one of our scripture readings from last week. We read this. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Oh, well, who's going to say them then? Jesus didn't have time to say them. Who's going to say them? Oh, we should probably keep reading. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you all, the apostles, into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you things that are to come, future, forward. He's going to say the things that I didn't have time to tell you. Or that, well, you couldn't hear. You can't bear them now. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, often this is taken out of context as a promise of how the Holy Spirit will interact with believers in the Christian life. Nope. The context is Jesus telling his apostles about who will lay the foundation of the church I have a lot to say to you. You can't bear it all now, but there's someone who's coming. He's going to teach you things, and it's not this kind of teaching. He's going to teach you stuff that is to come. That's not the promise for you and I. We're not apostles laying the foundation of the church. There's no promise that the Spirit is going to tell us all the things to come. That's just not it. John, eyewitness of Jesus, listened to his teaching, also promised a certain kind of the, uh, uh, influence, interaction with the Holy Spirit. Because according to Hebrews 1, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to his people, and the apostles are bearing witness to that and laying the foundation, there's no more foundation being laid. Everyone is now building on the foundation. Paul calls building on the foundation of the holy apostles. Uh, apostles and prophets. By the way, those are New Testament prophets. They're not Old Testament prophets. That's why it comes after the apostles. And that's its own theological problem. But the point is, the foundation's already been laid. Foundation has already been laid. In Jesus, and then the witness to him. Initially, this teaching was passed down in oral form. It was passed on in oral form in the form of tradition. And it was referred to broadly as the regula fidei, the rule of faith. The rule of faith. It was this outline of gospel faithfulness. And that helped shape the process of canonization that resulted in the New Testament, where we have the infallible, authoritative, deposit of faith for the instruction and edification of the church throughout the ages. And so as John's, so here's the parallel, as John's audience was instructed to hold to what was, what they heard from the beginning, this is what we have heard from the beginning. Here it is. This is it. This is what we've heard, particularly the New Testament concerning the person and work of, of, of Jesus. It's found right here in the Bible. This should be the, our primary source, therefore, because of how I've teased that out, if you're listening. This should be the primary and most authoritative source of our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves, theologically, knowledge of His Word, what He's declared, and how to live before Him. 
okay? Point one, inscripturated apostolic authority. Number two, the clarity of Scripture. And again, a comprehensive this, defense of this would take all day. But we see in this passage the very clear expectation of John that we mentioned a little bit earlier. That they understood the message and that they understood it well enough to identify when someone was claiming that there was a development, but it actually wasn't. It actually went against what they said. You can only say, oh, this is just a fuller version of this for so long until it becomes not a version at all. And in this, as I was preparing this week, I mean, it's just <laughs> the degree, his confidence that these people understand what they heard and understood it correctly is shocking because he's not like, all right, let's go back and relay this foundation because y'all are probably shaken. That's not what he says. Now he points out some of the errors. Yeah, who's the Antichrist except deny the son's coming to the flesh? Yeah, but he, there, where, he doesn't, he's not standing up arguments again. He's not relaying a foundation. He's not going back. And the threat of uh, people who are maybe feeling thrown off kilter by some of this teaching, he's like, you know what, you remember what you heard initially? Stick with that. He understands that they understood it. He understood it clear enough for him to not have to give a whole new introduction and go through all of it again. That's clear. Um, in fact, it's very similar to what we see from the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, where he tells the Galatians in Galatians 1, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel, turning to a gospel that's not really one. He says, if I were, even if I returned to you or an angel from heaven came back and said something, that was different than what you understood me to communicate. That Let him be accursed. That's a lot of confidence. Paul comes back and says, no, what I really mean was this. No, that's not what you said. An angel from heaven here. Oh, you missed this part. You missed it. No, let that angel be accursed. He understood that they got it. This is why the clarity of Scripture is so important. You can con the, the ability to say we can confidently understand, not in every detail, not in every theological minutia, but we can understand relative to the themes and topics particularly we've outlined about gospel faithfulness, we can understand that in the Scripture. So we can hold to what we have received from the beginning and spot frauds, even when they don't think they're frauds, and even when they simply call it development. There's a trust that they can do that. In other words, John seems fine with letting the community of believers, it's not just a singular person, it's the community of believers, discern if some piece of teaching clashes with the gospel, even if its pro proponents claim it doesn't clash, and even if they claim they have special insight, or that the Holy Spirit is directing them in a certain way. And folks, honestly, that sounds a lot like some of our Catholic friends. Well, here's this doctrine. It seems to go against Scripture. Oh, yeah, but you, you can't understand the Scripture. You have to have the church and the teaching magisterium to appropriately interpret it. You lose the clarity of Scripture, you're, it's a game, set, match there. Well, I guess I can't understand it. But texts like this say, no, clearly, clearly we can. It presupposes the clarity of the message. Presupposes the clarity of the message of gospel faithfulness. So this is a very high, low church view of authority. Meaning it's not a hierarchical. person at the top doesn't get to tell everyone else what it means. Therefore, we get the role of tradition. 
We discussed that church traditions last time cannot be foundational for holding beliefs, but ecumenical traditions particularly uh, are not without any weight at all. The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, if your interpretation of the Bible clashes with that, uh, you probably need to go back and just, I would say my first step would be, oh, wait, I concluded something that's wrong. And that's not because these things have ultimate authority, because they have derivative authority from the word that was preserved orally and uh, as a collocation and a distillation of the scripture themselves in one sense. But it does affect how we understand the Bible. Let me give you an example. Suppose you were doing scientific research. You, you did one experiment. You're an individual doing an experiment. And in your experiment, you concluded that smoking cigarettes had no relation whatsoever to lung cancer. Okay? If you got that result, you might go back to the drawing board and think, maybe we've taken a wrong step here. Maybe we analyzed something wrong. Because the amount of folks who genuinely seem to be trying to get at the truth um, have made it overwhelmingly obvious that cigarette smoking is correlated with lung cancer. Doesn't mean it's cause, or some people smoke cigarettes their whole life, they'll have lung cancer, but there's a, there's a direct correlation between the two. Your, your singular interpretation, your singular piece of data probably should not cause you to overturn it. It might. It might. And those are the cases where you have something that innovates and turns around, uh, you know, hey, it turns something on its head. I'm suggesting that that's how you should approach tradition. Tradition plays a role, but it's not the trump card. Tradition bows to the apostolic authority here as interpreted, because we can understand it, by the community of believers. Not just one believer, the community of believers. The great theological traditions of the church, particularly the ones coming out, I would say, of the Protestant Reformation, should factor into our interpretation. So the other side of this is this Western individualism where everyone kind of takes their Bible and learns, just kind of tries to do it all by themselves. But it's just not a thing. That's a historical novelty. That's a historical novelty. The Bible is never meant to be read in some kind of isolated, individualistic manner. It is a community project because you can't get out of trusting in your Bible reading. You've got to trust some folks. God set it up that way. No one here has enough knowledge of textual criticism to know that the eclectic Greek manuscript that underlies the ESV, you know, got it right at every... You, you've got to trust some folks. You've got to trust some translators. You've got to trust some historians to recreate what this word meant in this context. You cannot get trustings part of the Christian community out of the equation. But it's not this hierarchical thing. It's like a big circle. It's an interconnected web, which is why you have to read the Bible in Christian community. So it's not, well, my interpretation is just as good as anyone else's. No, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you've got a lame interpretation. It's a real bad one that needs some work. Okay, The way you fix that, the way you polish off those edges, the way you discern the primary from the secondary, the tertiary, is you read the Bible in Christian community where you have different people bringing different blind spots, but also different creativities, different literary abilities, different insights, all together in this beautiful potpourri of worshiping over the Word of God. Reading the Bible in Christian community within larger traditions. Teachers, elders, next on our list here. 
I'm mentioning this only for those who were not here last time uh, when we talked about having a, you know, not having a theology based on simply which is what we believe or what my pastor said or what my parents said or whatever. What then is the role of teachers? I already said John is not saying we don't need teachers, but now we can, it's kind of brought into, I think we've brought things into focus here. Like John's audience, we too have received a word from the beginning, right here, the beginning of our discipleship, the eternal life that came down, who was from the beginning. This testifies to him. This is the gospel of faithfulness that we received from the beginning. Here it is. So the role of the Bible teacher is to equip, edify, and instruct others in the word. That's the role of the teacher. That's the role of the teacher. To equip, edify, and instruct others. Exhort, you could add. From the word. So you should trust what teachers tell you. You should trust teachers. What they say about the Bible. Because they demonstrate it to you in the Bible. And not just because they say trust me. That's bad teaching. And I'm just going to believe this. Because this person's a smart person. Or a nice person. That's bad listening and learning. But what about this tension? Church members are called to submit to elders of their church. Part of the elder role is teaching. But at the same time, I'm called to evaluate things for truth. Tyler, you just told me that the Scripture is clear. You didn't say it was just clear to you. It is clear to the Christian community, and I'm part of the Christian community. So how, what about this little tension here? What are you supposed to do? How are you submit to, supposed to submit to the teaching of the elders without abandoning your responsibility to discern the truth? It's a good question, isn't it? I think there's a two-fold answer, two-layer answer here. One, because they are appointed by the Holy Spirit, Acts 20, to a teaching role, their teaching should generally result in a tentative belief until demonstrated. Tentative belief until demonstrated. By the way, that's not innocent until proven guilty. That's not innocent until proven guilty. That doesn't take any further evidence. Okay? Maybe none of the guilty evidence ever shows up. That doesn't mean what they said is good. No, I'm going to tentative. Okay, I'm going to trust them. I, you know what? When someone says trust me, they get they have like credit. It's like teaching on credit, but you got to pay out. I'm going to accept this in the absence of demonstration for this for now, and then I'm going to believe it when I see it in the Bible or I see some reason for it other than just trust me. You say, I, you're, you're trustworthy, you know the Bible, you don't pretend to know what you're talking about when you don't. I'm going to believe you initially while I wait for you to demonstrate it from the Scripture. That's the first part. Like the Bereans, second part, in Acts 17, who received the word of Paul and Silas eagerly while simultaneously examining the Scriptures daily to see if it were so, I would suggest that church members should approach elders to examine the scriptures together. Together. Ask questions. Hey, I thought, did you say that, did I understand what you were saying correctly? I've always thought this, but understood you to say this. Can you help me? I'm kind of gapping out right here. That's a great way to, to say, hey, this is what I'm saying in the scripture. It seemed like this. And that is not sitting in judgment and an evaluation over the teaching. You know what doing that is? Someone says, oh, I disagree. I'm just off. I'm just going to kind of continue on in the quiet of my heart, believing what I believe and believing that they're wrong. I would suggest don't do that. Don't do that. Come and ask. 
And don't be afraid. You're like, oh, no, don't ask a question. I'm going to get, you know. No, you're not. That's how we learn the Bible together. That's how we learn the Bible together. So elders, tentative, yes. And the submissive disposition, tentative, yes. Until it's demonstrated. If it doesn't ever get demonstrated, you better be very cautious. Why is someone teaching you and never, you know, never, you know, giving you the scripture? Tentative, yes, until it's demonstrated so they can buy time based off past credibility and exposing the scriptures. And then in cases where I'm disagreeing, I'm coming and asking questions. I'm coming and saying, this is what I said. Let's get at this together. What do you think? I think you can accomplish both goals. Finally here, and this is a slightly longer, that's okay. Already mentioned this in verse 27. We should not be expecting new information to come to us from the Holy Spirit. New information, personal internal revelation, be it new truths about God or how to live in light of Him. We already have that, okay? We already have that. We also mentioned that there is no more authoritative revelation. But what I did not mention is that that also includes personal internal revelation to myself that seems contrary to Scripture. Okay, so many of you know my dad is a Christian counselor, and I can't tell you how many times he's told me this is what he sees. Oh, I just feel the Spirit leading me to divorce my spouse. Oh, no, they must have something. Y'all fell into adultery. No, no, there's no adultery. Oh, are they leaving you? They're abandoning you. No. I just don't like them. I just, I just, this person is just kind of miserable to be with. And um, God doesn't want me to live this way. He wants me to live a free and full life. I know God. He's a kind Father. And, and, and I, feel the, I, feel the, I feel the Spirit leading me in this direction. I don't want to resist the Spirit and have a conflicted conscience. This is what I feel is right. Are you telling me to let my conscience accuse me, Pastor? The answer is, yes, I am. Yes, I am. You know why? Because that person is confusing a cleared conscience, a clear conscience with a seared conscience. They feel the same from the inside. Sociopaths have clear consciences. They would from they, they would say. What they actually have is seared consciences. The difference is that one is a sinful course of action that someone is so blinded to that they feel an incredible peace with it. This is why the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is so important. Because there is no doctrine of the clarity of the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit in my situational ethics doctrine. Did y'all hear about that doctrine? That's because it doesn't exist. Clarity of Scripture? Yes! Hold firm to what you believe. Yes! You can understand it. Yes! Well, what happens when I feel the Spirit leading me to do something that at least initially seems contrary to what the Word says? The Word gets the trump card both in authority and in interpretive confidence. You should have more confidence interpreting the Bible than your feelings or your callings or your whatevers. 
in the case where the Spirit works dynamically to provide someone with a particular desire, okay, to do something, pursue a particular job or course of action, great. Then we'll ask, is it is this seem to be a wise thing? Or is this a foolish, maybe it's not sinful, but is this a skilled play in God's world? That's what biblical wisdom is. If it passes that test, then we should let the Spirit shape what abiding looks like in each person's life. But not before. But not before. The Spirit does work dynamically. He does work. And abiding looks differently in the details of all of our lives. I hope going through this, even though it was a little bit extended, provides you a framework to think about how to learn and how to abide in the truth. We better equip to learn, to listen, to understand what we've received from the beginning so that we can abide in the Word as the anointing abides in us and we will not be put to shame. Let's pray. And so, God, as the anointing abides in us, we pray that you would help us to abide in you so that we would not be put to shame. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers our sins so that we don't have reason to be ashamed. The Christ who came in the flesh to take our shame. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us press into this word, what we have heard from the beginning that we would know it better, that we would not be drawn away from it by smooth talk, by claims of intelligence or insights or being on the wrong side of history on this Christian ethical issue or whatever the case may be. Would you give us courage because it will certainly take it. We ask